Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York State Attorney General Tish James released an investigative report this week that found Governor Andrew Cuomo violated state and federal laws by sexually harassing multiple women, including current and former staffers, as well as a state trooper who was providing security detail for him. The report also finds the governor fostered a toxic and hostile work environment and frequently stared at numerous women and made inappropriate sexualized comments. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. James and the investigators she appointed, former acting U.S. Attorney June Kim and employment attorney Ann Clark, interviewed 179 people, including current and former staff of the governor as well as Cuomo himself. And they reviewed 74,000 pieces of evidence, including documents, emails, texts, and pictures, to reach their conclusions. These interviews and pieces of evidence reveal a deeply disturbing yet clear picture. Governor Cuomo sexually harassed current and former state employees in violation of both federal and state laws. The Independence investigation found that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women, many of whom were young women, by engaging in unwanted groping, kisses, hugging, and by making inappropriate comments. The report includes testimony from 11 women accusers, including one referred to in the report as Executive Assistant One. She has previously claimed she was the victim of sexual assault by Cuomo. The report finds the junior staffer, who is not releasing her name to the public, was the recipient of numerous offensive interactions with the governor, which culminated in an incident at the executive mansion in November 2020, where she says the governor reached under her blouse and grabbed her breast. Investigator Ann Clark also described an account from a female state trooper assigned to guard duties for Cuomo, who says the governor inappropriately touched her on numerous occasions. In an elevator, while standing behind the trooper, he ran his finger from her neck down her spine and said, hey you. Another time, she was standing holding the door open for the governor. As he passed, he took his open hand and ran it across her stomach from her belly button to where she, the hip where she keeps her gun. She told us that she felt completely violated. The trooper also testified that Cuomo often asked her inappropriate questions. She then tried to deflect the conversation by asking the governor what he was looking for in a girlfriend. He responded that he was looking for somebody who could handle pain. Her account was corroborated by several other state troopers who witnessed some of the incidents. Investigator June Kim describes a toxic work culture created by Cuomo and his aides, where one alleged victim described a kind of twilight zone atmosphere, where inappropriate acts by the governor were normalized. As one senior staffer stated bluntly, as the sexual harassment allegations became public in March of this year in text exchanges, with another in the executive cha- in the administration i quote hopefully when this is all done people will realize the culture even outside of the sexual harassment stuff is not something you can get away with you can't berate and terrify people 24/7 
The report also says Cuomo and his top aides illegally retaliated against one of his accusers, Lindsay Boyland, by releasing some of her personnel records to reporters. Chief of Staff Melissa DeRosa is singled out for not properly reporting sexual harassment incidents between the governor and former aide Charlotte Bennett. A.G. James stopped short of making a criminal referral, and she did not call for the governor's resignation, saying that decision is up to him. James says the incident with executive assistant number one was reported to the Albany Police Department. Reaction in New York's political world was swift, with leading elected officials, both Democratic and Republican, reiterating calls for the governor to resign. More ominous is a statement by Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie, whose House is conducting an impeachment inquiry. In a statement, Hastie says the conduct by the governor outlined in this report would indicate someone who is not fit for office. Hastie says the report has been referred to the Assembly Impeachment Inquiry Committee and that he'll have more to say in the very near future. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. The fallout from the AG's report on Governor Cuomo continues, Alan, with the paper's top headlines from the New York Times facing loss of support. Cuomo gains attention from prosecutors. After the report from the AG, Mr. Cuomo's most loyal allies, including the head of the New York Democratic Party, withdrew their support. Four prosecutors now say they would investigate his actions, deepening the crisis confronting the governor, who has found himself increasingly isolated. Also, Cuomo's office from the Washington Post sought help from liberal advocates as it attempted to discredit accuser. Advisors to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo reached out to a prominent advocate for harassment victims and the head of gay rights group for input in a letter seeking to undermine a former aide's claims. He's in quite a bit of trouble right now. The question is, is there any way he serves out a third term? Does he resign? What happens, Alan? Well, it would appear that he has no options other than to resign. The pressure is so great. Now you have these district attorneys, including our own David Soares, who are saying there may have been criminal activity and we want to know about that. Send us all of the information. And then tell me, David, have you heard of a single prominent figure who has come out to support the governor? Mm-hmm. People both without and within his administration have turned on him. I mean, this is the end. So he could say, okay, I'm Andrew Cuomo. I'm tough. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just sit here and I don't care if the walls are crashing in on me. I'm just not going to move. And that would appear to be what the strategy has been up until now. You know, he's in a very bad spot. And to me, the only real way out. And you can watch, you can watch all of the stuff disappearing that is being held against them, the attorneys and everything else, if he does get out. But if he doesn't get out, this is going to get much worse for him. So from where I'm sitting, and what do I know? I've been wrong before, believe me. I wrote a column not that long ago saying looked like he had beat them and that he was going to stay. So he could very well try to tough it out. But if he does, I think that the consequences will be pretty great. 
Right now, David, you got the assembly ready to impeach. You got the assembly speaker. You got the president of the Senate. You've got a huge array of people, including some of his most prominent supporters, including the head of the Democratic Party in New York State, who are raising real issues for him. I don't see how he doesn't resign. Is there any way you see that he reaches out to Hasty and says, hold on now, I won't run for a fourth term. Let me serve out my third. I don't see how Hasey's going to be able to tell the people who are talking impeachment within his own conference that he can stay. I think the, the die is cast, and I think it's the end for him. And uh, I don't see what he can do, uh, David, uh, to stop that. I can't see a single major supporter for him. Alan, and what happens with Andrew Cuomo's brother, CNN's Chris Cuomo? Well, it's a great question, David. I've been thinking about it a great deal. I was talking about it yesterday on our roundtable program, and it is a real tough problem for CNN. First of all, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Why is he responsible for what his brother has done or said? And yet, one could only suspect that the reason he's there is because he's the governor's brother. On the other hand, he is now the most popular guy that they have on CNN. So if you're Zucker or any of the people who are running that company, what do you say? We're going to fire our most popular person because of what his brother is alleged to have done or not done. That puts them in a very tough spot. They don't want to lose that audience. And it is a huge audience. Well, a lot of this is going to depend on how all of this plays out. Right now, you have Brother Cuomo sitting in the hot seat, not talking about his own brother, which is the hottest thing that is going right now. It's a real dilemma for CNN. Are the Republicans in New York licking their chops, and will it affect their strategy going forward? I don't know. They've certainly not picked a strong candidate in Lee Zeldin for governor. The guy's a Trumper. Clearly, they are more content with staying with somebody whose allegiance is to Trump than finding somebody who could win. You know, in my state of Massachusetts, we certainly have a governor who is immensely popular. He stays away from the Trump thing. He does his job, and he is not going to put anybody into a position where his incumbency becomes political. So that's it. If the Republicans continue to insist on a guy who I don't think can be elected, not with his Trump credentials, you know, George Pataki beat Mario Cuomo, but he was not a fellow who was going to be making a lot of waves, and he was a moderate. That's what the Republicans need right now if they want to have a chance. Well, Alan, I can't help but ask this question. I mean, for so long in your interaction with not only Mario Cuomo, but Governor Andrew Cuomo, they're so smart. they strategic. They know politics through and through, very buttoned up. And I have to say, with Andrew Cuomo, why the risk? Why do something like this? Why put yourself in jeopardy when in all other accounts, he's a very shrewd and smart politician? That's exactly right. I said it yesterday, David. He's both smart and stupid. The smart part, obviously, is his machinations, his choices of people around him have not always been that good. He is a guy who succumbs to what so many other politicians have done and wasn't smart. You know, the big ifs, if he had stayed married, if he'd stayed with the girlfriend that he had in Westchester County, it could have been better, but he didn't. So these are things that really have doomed him in the way I'm looking at it right now as a politician. In the long view of history, does it damage his father's legacy in any way? I've been thinking about that. I just don't know. One of the father's worst vulnerabilities was that he stood by the kid, his kid. 
And the thing about Andrew that is to be remembered is that it's not only now, but he was a guy who was a sort of enforcer when Mario, who had enjoyed broad public appeal, was a decent, wonderful man. But there was Andrew. So your question is a profound one. It may. I doubt it. I got a couple of nasty letters yesterday saying, you know the Cuomos trying to put them all together. Well, Mario is a very different man than Andrew is, and history is going to show that. Legislative Gazette Political Observer Alan Shartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Earlier this month, Canadian officials announced that on August 9th, fully vaccinated U.S. citizens and permanent residents will be allowed to enter the country through its land borders. There are caveats. Travelers must prove they have been vaccinated and need a negative pre-departure COVID test. All of the information must be presented at the border and must be pre-filed on an official Canadian website. SUNY Plattsburgh Center for the Study of Canada Director Christopher Kirkey tells the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley the rules Canada is imposing are not simple, but not overwhelmingly complex. The truth of the matter is they're more time-consuming. It's a matter of data gathering and going through hoops, if you will. As a permanent resident and citizen of Canada, when I recently crossed, for example, I think in many respects what the Canadian government is doing now is testing out these protocols because I'm pretty sure that those protocols will be the same as vaccinated Americans will have to go through. So what does that mean? It means you've got to, of course, um, be vaccinated, have had your two shots and have proof of that in a print card that you can show to a border authority. Um, You also have to have a COVID-19 negative test taken. And from the time the test is taken and you get hopefully a negative result. You've got 72 hours in which to uh, get to the border. Um, And then you've got to go into a portal, a Government of Canada portal called ArriveCan. And it's it's designed to help facilitate your passage at the border. So you upload copies of your passport, for example, photos of your passport. You put in information about um, your COVID-19 status. And then, of course, you've got to input information about a quarantine plan. Where would you quarantine and how are you quarantining and that sort of thing. Um, And when you do get to the border, ultimately, you're asked to show all this information and the border official reviews it all and confirms that what he or she is seeing is consistent with what you've downloaded. It's certainly far more steps than we've had to deal with previously going north. Chris Kirkey, it is pre-August Ninth, and you mentioned your experience going across currently. You also mentioned quarantine and having the Canadians calling you every day. Will that be eliminated as of August 9th? My understanding is it will be eliminated. Yeah, and that's why I think this period that they're allowing Canadians or Canadian expats who live in the United States to go north of the border. It's a trial period to see, to work out the bugs and everything, to make sure everything is is, uh, working properly so that when the border is open for vaccinated Americans, um, those issues can be set aside. I mean, that's the hope provided, of course, 
you know, there isn't an enormous spike in the current variant, the Delta variant or others. So, Canada has opened its border for people traveling north. That came after quite a period of time of people calling on Canada to open it. Do you think that Canada responded to pressure from not only the U.S., but Canadian business interests and others to open the border? I think they were listening to those voices. There's no question about that, both particularly from the business community. But at the same time, I think Mr. Trudeau was on the record saying that, look, here are our, our scientific benchmarks. We need to meet this number of either single or double, you know, vaccinations before we're willing to do this. Um and we need to make sure that we've got sufficient supply to make sure we can get all Canadians vaccinated. He's taken a very incremental step as far as, uh, or steps rather, as far as moving towards opening the border goes. But I think it's also been fairly responsible. And what what's interesting, quite honestly, here in the North Country, is that a lot of voices from the political community, business community, have been focused on sort of expressing frustrations with the Canadian government, um, where I think there was an expectation, perhaps... Uh, a false expectation that at the same time that Canada would do things, there would be this binational that the United States would do so too. And we clearly know that that's not been the case. Did Canada's decision to reopen the border, particularly by Prime Minister Trudeau, was any of that due to the potential that he will call an election this fall? I think I think it's fair to say there's been quite a bit of talk amongst observers that he's very much interested in the prospect of calling an election this fall, largely in an effort to gain a, he's currently has a minority, the Liberal Party has a minority government position and he'd love to have a majority government position. So he doesn't have to worry about how other parties are, if they're willing to support a particular piece of legislation. Um, but it's also clear, I think it's fair to say that the Prime Minister wasn't, what would not it would have been to his disadvantage, for example, to call a general election if he hadn't taken steps to reopen the border because it would have been, you know, a point of vulnerability where the opposition parties and the media and other groups could have attacked Trudeau saying, well, look, you know, we really need to move forward on this. There's no compelling reason not to open the border um, to fully vaccinated Canadians and as of August 9th, Americans, and in early September, the international community. So it would have been it, it would have been a handy. So I think clearly to the extent he's contemplating uh, asking uh, the governor general to dissolve parliament and call an election, that was on his mind. He doesn't have to call an election until October 2023. Right. He's got some, shall we say, wiggle room here. He does. So what are the issues he's going to be looking at before he goes to the governor general and says, we need to dissolve parliament and call an election. He'd obviously want to make sure that he's in a position to win. But having said that, I, the larger questions are going to be, um, you know, what will be the principal campaign issues? Um, obviously, uh, his handling, the liberal government's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic will be front and center. But Mr. Trudeau, in most polls, um, I think uh, overwhelming number of polls show that the Canadian public regard him to have done as prime minister a good job in managing this crisis in Canada. Um, so that's a positive for him. Um, other issues that will emerge uh, include most notably, um, and this has been in many respects an issue that has been gaining traction in, in 
Canadian social, political, everyday discourse for at least 15 plus years has been the question of First Nations, Indigenous peoples and communities. Um, and, you know, when Mr. Trudeau campaigned in 2014, came into power originally in 2015, he did so saying, you know, sort of offering a very progressive approach to saying we're going to really tackle some very ugly and some very outstanding issues that confront Indigenous peoples in Canada. He's taken some steps, but they haven't been exactly uh, uh, gigantic steps. They've been smaller incremental uh, policies. Um, so that's a bit of a point of vulnerability. And um, what's really, of course, in the last few months raised the focus of attention to an even unbelievably unexpected higher level is the fact that when the government of Canada, partnering with principally the Catholic Church, but also other church organizations to run so-called residential schools um, in the 19th and 20th centuries, where, you know, young First Nations uh, children were effectively removed from their communities and brought down to the so-called residential schools in southern Canada, if you will, um, uh, their treatment and their time spent at these uh, schools where it was nothing short of genocidal in some respects. And we're finding that out because First Nations communities across Canada are bringing to light using things such as ground-penetrating radar. They're finding these mass graves, uh, horrific numbers. And here they are, they're thrown into a mass grave. They may have died from tuberculosis. They may have died from other causes. So Mr. Trudeau is vulnerable, but he also has an opportunity. If he comes out and, and says, look, you know, uh, we haven't done enough. We need to really step forward. And here's four or five major points that are policies that we are not simply going to pursue, but we're going to implement. And here's a clear timeline. If we're elected, we're going to tackle this. Our conversation with Centre for the Study of Canada director Christopher Kirkey occurred before the union representing Canadian border agents voted to authorize a strike. According to the Montreal Gazette, the strike could occur as soon as August 6th and could result in delayed traffic at the border. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Climate change has become one of the top, if not the top, issues around the country. And in the Northeast, the effects of climate change are being felt from more severe storms. To that end, activists held their 10th Tonko Tuesday of the summer this week to protest what they call the late and slow legislative process that is addressing climate collapse. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. Each week, the band of environmentalists position themselves outside Capital Region Congressman Paul Tonko's Dove Street office in Albany, carrying signs and voicing concerns about the Clean Future Act, which sets a national goal to achieve a 100% clean economy by no later than 2050. Sandy Steubing with PAWS, People of Albany United for Safe Energy, has issues with the bill she says defines new fossil fuel infrastructure and waste incineration as clean energy solutions. In the Clean Future Act, which is why we're protesting mostly, Representative Conco, Conco has included frac gas and waste incineration in his definition of clean energy. For example, combined heat and power plants that are powered by fracked gas are listed as clean. 
Steubing says the group's goal is to bring awareness to the catastrophic crisis facing all of life on Earth. The definition of clean energy in the Clean Future Act is loose and dirty. It is literally dirty. The dioxins and heavy particulates that spew forth from waste incineration, the burning of garbage, the burning of waste, is full of dioxins and heavy metal particulates. Plus, garbage incinerators emit more carbon per kilowatt hour than coal burning does. And yet it is treated as a clean source of fuel in the Clean Future Act. Tunko, a Democrat from the 20th District, says from time to time his office communicates with the protesters. I think, you know, we have exchanged with them what we're doing. We're still working on our climate legislation because, uh, again, it's a work in progress. We want to make certain that uh, through the infrastructure bills and through perhaps the reconciliation bill, we're able to advance the policy initiatives. You know, it's a very difficult um, setting in which to get things done, but we're determined uh, to advance a climate legislation agenda. Um, we have some of our down payments in the, uh, in the um, hope of the infrastructure bill being done. Uh, we've incorporated, you know, incorporated it into our budget bills that were done just this past week. Uh, for instance, we addressed um, through the Department of Energy uh, the electric vehicle purchases for federal state. Uh, we're pushing hard on electric uh, vehicle charging stations. Um, we're advancing research on uh, renewable energy. Franco says we have exchanged with them what we're doing, but he has never contacted PAWS, even though we've asked for a meeting many times. In July, Tonko shared what he told activists with WAMC. Uh, there is a section in the bill that speaks to um, waste uh, to energy, um, and uh, so they're upset about that. I told them it's, if I had uh, authored the bill on my own, I would not include that because I am not a fan of incineration as an energy alternative. Steubing, who claims Tonko continues to operate at a gradual pace, would like to see the congressman sponsor the End Polluter Welfare Act. That would cut fossil fuel subsidies and tax loopholes of these dirty fuel companies. Tonko's approach to legislation is incremental, but it's too late for that. According to data from the UN's panel on intergovernmental climate change, we have about seven years before we cross the ultimate threshold of climate collapse, meaning the planet will heat on its own, irregardless of what humans do. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2132. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.